Well, I'm just so happy to be here tonight. I have had students come to Baylor from TAC for so many years. I've heard so many stories about how happy they were here. And, you know, so far from my visit, everything has been confirmed. In some ways, even though I've never been here before, I feel like I'm coming home because all of the people that I've met tonight, for example, know either one of my students or someone else who might know me or someone. There seems to be so many connections. So I really feel quite at home here uh, and quite honored to be speaking to you. When I was asked to speak, I, uh, there were a number of possible topics, like such as Thucydides, which I've written a book on. Instead, I decided to do something that was new. So I've never given this lecture anywhere officially before, and I am, to me, it's breaking new ground. I have written a book on the politics, as Dean Goyette mentioned, but now I've been working on Aristotle's ethics, something I have taught for years. And every time I go back to it, I see so much more in it that I had never seen before. It is just inexhaustible. And so I am still learning from Aristotle. And I'd like to share tonight with some things I think I have seen and learned from Aristotle in Book 5. I guess, in a way, everything I know I have learned from Aristotle. Even when I write on films or Thucydides, I'm bringing Aristotle to them in one way or another. So tonight I'm going to explore Aristotle's contribution to theories of justice and the ways in which he thinks justice can be made effective in political communities. I should concede at the outset that someone looking to Greek political thought for a contribution to justice would not immediately turn to Aristotle. In Plato's Republic, which is considered one of the greatest works on justice ever written, Socrates soars with his young interlocutors into the light outside the prejudices and shadows of the cave and plums with them into the depth of the soul and its order to which political communities can only aspire. In contrast to Plato's heights and depths, Aristotle's treatment of justice in Book 5 of the Ethics seems flat. One prominent Aristotelian scholar observes that although justice is the virtue to which Aristotle gives the most attention in the ethics, his, quote, his discussion is likely to disappoint or bore many readers. The same scholar supposes that when teachers of the ethics must omit some portion of the book, it is book five they most often choose to ignore. Contrary to this general impression that this uh, scholar captures, I find Aristotle's treatment of justice in Book 5 as exciting as any other book of the ethics. Now, for some, that's not saying much. But for me, <laughs> that is saying a lot. In Book 5, Aristotle explores the place of law and its relation to justice and therefore gives us his most sustained contribution to legal theory. He discusses the naturally just and locates it in shared governance regulated by law, which constitutes both support and correction for democratic politics. He makes pardon or forgiveness central to judging others and even suggests a beneficence that can hold the community together. He appeals to, quote, shrines to the graces, to which I refer in the subtitle of my talk, beneficent deities in Greek mythology who encourage an exchange of goods among citizens. That's Aristotle's interpretation. There's not much about them in Greek mythology. All these moves, moreover, address Greek tragedy. For they constitute, Aristotle's moves constitute ways in which political life can hold back tragic conflict. By the same token, Aristotle responds as well to Platonic political theory, which on more than one occasion presents political life as tragic. As when Socrates in the Republic calls upon the muses to describe the fall of the city, quote, in high, tragic talk. 
In my talk tonight, I begin with Aristotle's presentation of the relation between justice and law of political communities, both justice as the lawful, for Aristotle says, the laws command the deeds of every virtue and forbid the contrary, and justice as the distribution of goods and punishments. While elevating the authority of law, Aristotle also indicates that the law is not sufficient for preventing conflict, and even that laws at their best achieve justice, quote, only for the most part. A range of difficulties appear from his analysis, including controversy over the ways in which goods are distributed, the inadequate compensation awarded to the injured, and more generally, the dependence of law on particular human beings to formulate and apply it. Aristotle consequently seeks other forms of justice that go beyond the law, that supplement, even complete the law, namely reciprocity, natural justice, and equity. In doing so, he indicates ways in which political life can be directed or even reformed, not only to check conflict or to hold back evils, but also to embody positive human goods in political forms, such as self-government and hence deliberation, forgiveness and beneficence. In this way, I understand Aristotle's politics to work within the limits set by tragedy, but also to push against those limits. Whereas the protagonists of tragedy strive for a divine-like justice and nobility and come to act like beast, Aristotle dignifies the human and with it political life. Human beings for him are political by nature because they share reason or speech and hence are able to deliberate about the beneficial and the just. A political life informed by Aristotle not only staves off tragedy, but offers an alternative to the despotic mastery of the philosopher king and the inevitable corruption and decline that follows his rule, as Socrates describes in the Republic. After discussing Aristotle's praise of law and its limits, I will discuss how Aristotelian principles supplement and enrich the law and therewith political life. First, reciprocity involved in exchanging goods. Then, natural justice that demands shared governance. And finally, equity, a form of justice that modifies the law's universality to take individuals into account and therefore allows pardon our forgiveness. I conclude with brief reflections on suicide, the last topic Aristotle brings up in Book 5. So I'm going through Book 5. I am following Aristotle's organization of the book. So first I'll talk about justice and the law, which amounts to about the first half of Book 5. Aristotle begins his account of justice by claiming that it can be found in the law which commands the deeds of every virtue and forbids those of every vice. The law commands courageous acts, not to run from battle, moderate acts, not to commit adultery, and gentle ones, not to strike or to slander anyone, to use Aristotle's examples. Although he describes justice as the lawful as, quote, complete virtue, for it directs our actions in relation to others, he also suggests limits to what the law can accomplish. Very soon, Aristotle raises the question of whether the good man is the same as the good citizen, but he quickly moves on without answering it. The good citizen is obedient to the laws, but is this sufficient to make him a good human being? Moreover, Aristotle makes clear that laws vary from one political community to another. They command virtuous actions and forbid vicious ones, he says, correctly when correctly laid down, but worse when laid down haphazardly. Laws are necessary and good, 
but they are only more or less good, depending on the legislator, the one who lays down lays them down correctly or incorrectly. But where do law where do good lawgivers come from? Do they exist by nature and hence by chance? Or if there is an education for lawgivers, who or what educates the lawgivers? It's a huge problem. Is there a course to take? An internship to sign up for? A book to read? Maybe there's an answer to that one on the last one. That's Aristotle's ethics, but uh, still it's a problem. Would not one have to be a good lawgiver to educate a good lawgiver? More particular problems arise when Aristotle turns from justice as the lawful to particular forms of justice uh, that, they, that justice takes in political communities. The distribution of goods by the laws regulating honor and property. And corrective justice that punishes or corrects violations of laws. So he calls them distributive and corrective justice. Distributive and corrective justice, Aristotle says, means the equal or the fair. It's one word in Greek. We don't know exactly how to translate it. It looks like equal. Uh, It exists when goods are distributed to individuals that correspond to their worth, he says. This is a formula for equality in that one's just portion is equal to what one deserves in relation to others. There's no absolute equality here. If the law treated everyone the same, if it assumed, for example, that being equal in one way, say in one's humanity, meant being equal in all ways, the law would be unjust. Because the equality involved in distributive justice is in proportion to worth, quote, fights and denunciations arise, as when those who are equal are given unequal portions, and those who are unequal have been distributed equal ones. Disagreements arise because all do not mean the same thing by worth. Indeed, such disagreements, Aristotle warns, accounts for the differences in regimes. Democrats say that all who are free and not slaves are equally worthy. Oligarchs would measure worth by wealth, others by good birth, and aristocrats by virtue. A second form of justice as the equal comes into play when laws are violated. Then the judge, Aristotle says, takes from the perpetrator what he gains from his crime and returns it to the victim from whom he has taken it. Aristotle suggests the inadequacy of corrective justice by his deceptively simple mathematical language, as as if subtracting and adding could restore what existed before the crime, which he calls the exchange. It's an exchange. The, the unjust man steals. Someone else loses. An exchange. Seems like a pretty awful crime to me. But Aristotle's mathematical language kind of smooths it over. But he gives some really telling examples. Listen to all these exchanges. They include not only cheating in business deals, but also theft, adultery, Poisoning. (laughs) Pandering. Stealing slaves. I tell you, I'm not making this up. It's all from his book five. All right. Abduction. Rape. Assault. Maiming. And murder. His including rape or abduction reminds us of the Trojan War and Paris's abduction of Helen. Would the Greeks have been satisfied merely by the return of Helen? You know, restoring the loss. Trojans gain, Greeks lose, Greeks get back Helen. And could Helen have been restored in the same condition as existed before her abduction? Moreover, 
Aristotle includes murder among the examples of unjust actions. Would even the execution of a murderer restore the balance? A life for a life, to be sure, might be just, but it could hardly be said, as Aristotle does, that corrective justice deprives the unjust of gain and restores the loss so that one who has suffered injustice has no less than he had at the beginning. In all of these ways, Aristotle leads us to see the inadequacy of the law for securing an end of violent conflict to say nothing of cultivating good human beings. The distributions of the community's goods can be and are contested. Aristotle's list of crimes, some of them violent, indicate the limits of the law in controlling crime and in providing satisfactory corrections when violations occur. If Aristotle's account of justice stopped here, and it looks like he's finished, he's talked about justice in the complete sense, the lawful, justice in the particular sense, distributive and corrective justice. That's what he sets out the beginning of Book 5 to do. If it stopped here, he would have insufficient answer to tragic conflict, and he would echo Plato's suggestion that political life is tragic. But Aristotle does not stop here. His initial account of justice as the lawful is only his first word. I mean, it goes on for half a book, but it's still, in a way, only his first word in his discussion. Justice and injustice, he says, are spoken of in more than one way. And Aristotle never specifies just how many. In the remaining parts of Book 5, Aristotle discusses three things that I argue minimize the tragic character of human and political life, reciprocity, natural justice, and equity. I will speak of each of them in turn. Reciprocity literally means suffering in turn. It occurs when one suffers what one has inflicted on another. As Aristotle says, people seek to reciprocate harm for harm. If they do not, that is held to be slavish. People do not simply look to law courts for compensation, for after all, they cannot count on an outcome they think they deserve. Rather, they seek to take justice in their own hands. Moreover, if one's leaving a crime against oneself unpunished is slavish, would it not also be slavish to leave its punishment to the law or to a judge? Aristotle soon mentions rulers in his discussion of reciprocity, just for an example, happens upon them. When you're reading Aristotle and he gives you what seems to be a random example, stop and figure out how it goes with the discussion he's having, just a general rule for reading Aristotle. So he mentions rulers in his discussion of reciprocity. If a ruler strikes another, he ought not to be struck in turn. Or if someone strikes a ruler, he should not only be struck, but punished. So here we have the picture of rulers and ruled striking each other. It is a strange example, if only because striking and being struck are not the most obvious interactions we would wish to attribute to ruler and ruled. I mean, it could go on in national conventions, to be sure. But still, it's not ideal. Even there. On the other hand, this example may be the most appropriate for indicating the problem to which Aristotle is calling attention. For those who inflict harm in return because not doing so is slavish are likely also to resist being ruled by another. Homer's Achilles serves as a famous example. Moreover, it is not only the wronged who seek reciprocity. For people, Aristotle observes, wish justice as reciprocity to mean, quote, the justice of Radamanthus. Perhaps not a household word, even today, but Radamanthus was a mythical judge in the underworld. 
one of the judges whom Socrates claims in the Apology he looks forward to meeting after his death, one who is truly a judge rather than those who claim to be judges in this life. Human beings wish for a divine justice, judges that see perfectly into souls. Socrates tells a myth in the Gorgias in which Zeus appoints three of his sons, one of whom is Radamanthus, to do just that when souls arrive in Hades, stripped visible because stripped of their bodies and anything else that covers their souls. Aristotle, in contrast to Plato, at least in the Gorgias myth, Aristotle turns to what can be accomplished in political communities absent perfect justice. Instead of dwelling on the ways in which harm for harm falls short of the justice we might wish and its correction after death, Aristotle turns to the workings of reciprocity in an exchange of goods. He gives the example of the exchange of goods and services between those who possess different arts or skills, like doctors and farmers, house builders, and also shoemakers. Exchange makes it possible to acquire the diversity of goods necessary to life and even an abundance that one can share with others, as Aristotle's example of the exchange of a house for quite a number of shoes suggests. Exchange of goods can occur, Aristotle continues, only when there is a medium of exchange, money, that makes the exchange of products of different worth possible. No one really wants a hundred pairs of shoes, right? Well, I don't know about that, but you know, if, you're, <laughs> if your closet is big enough, maybe I should say, no one really wants a thousand pairs of shoes and it will be more acceptable. <laughs> Aristotle emphasizes that money, the word there in Greek is nomisma, exists by convention or law, nomos, rather than by nature and is therefore up to us. Whatever we use for the medium of exchange, that there is some such medium established by law or convention, makes possible the exchange within cities, essential to the variety and bounty conducive to both living and living well. The need for a variety of goods that different human beings share and to which they contribute in different ways, Aristotle says, leads to mutual giving that, quote, holds the city together. Aristotle speaks more broadly, although more briefly, of the mutual exchange of goods that holds the city together when he mentions the graces. They are daughters of Zeus, as Hesiod recounts in the Theogony, who dwell with the muses in delight or good cheer. Hesiod doesn't say a lot more about them, but they're such good divinities, given that he associates delight and good cheer with them. So it's a good note for Aristotle to include here. Because communities remain together due to mutual exchange, Aristotle observes, people place a shrine to the graces along the roadway to foster reciprocal giving, which characterizes grace or gratitude. In Greek, it is the same word as it is in, in Christian New Testament, charis, grace or gratitude. The graces are that word in the plural, the feminine plural, the graces. One is grateful for what one has received and expresses one, one's gratitude by giving in turn. Now, scholars have no knowledge of where and when there was such a shrine to the graces or even whether one ever existed. We have only Aristotle to trust for the existence of such shrines. The phrase of Aristotle's that I have translated as along the roadway, that's where the shrines to the graces are placed, is literally, quote, in the way of one's feet. It is in the way. The shrine is in the way and thus serves as a stumbling block. Perhaps it is Aristotle himself 
who is setting up the shrine, metaphorically speaking, as a reminder of the graces that serves as a stumbling block to those who desire simply to return harm for harm rather than good for good. Radamanthus, the punitive judge whom souls encounter on their way to the underworld, must be supplemented from Aristotle's point of view by feminine deities, the graces, who encourage us not only to, as he says, render service in turn, but to initiate uh, acts of graciousness. Those encouraged by the graces, let us call them the gracious, are like the great-souled individuals whom Aristotle described early uh, in the Ethics. And book four, for those of you who know that, what is often translated as the magnanimous man, uh, the great-souled individuals confer benefits, as Aristotle describes it in book four. But unlike the great-souled who think that they are worthy of the greatest things, the gracious do not prefer giving to receiving, nor do they forget the benefits they receive. Both of these things are things that Aristotle said about the great-souled man in book four. Aristotle's graces are a stumbling block, not only to those who focus on returning harm for harm, but also to great-souled individuals by reminding them that good deeds, theirs included, are fostered by the graces, and hence that the gods share responsibility for them. Moreover, their benefactions of those who perform good deeds must be understood as serving others who will serve in turn. The benefactors are not the only benefactors, are the sole givers. Their benefiting others is not an act of self-sufficiency, but of grace, and makes them part of a community of reciprocal giving. In the politics, Aristotle associates serving with the virtues of women, the same word he uses here for what the graces promote. They too, of course, are women, the graces. Uh, so he says in the politics that serving is the virtue of women. But clearly it is not only the virtue of women, for in serving and serving in turn lies the reciprocity that holds cities together. Aristotle is not as quick as the tragic Ajax to dismiss the contribution of women. In his own way, Aristotle takes his turn at rendering service by furthering Aeschylus' attempt to convert the avenging furies who torment Orestes for his matricide into Eumenides, the kindly goddesses who support the city, on whom they confer grace or favor. Now I'm talking about Aeschylus' Oresteia, the trilogy, Agamemnon, Libation Bearers, and Eumenides. Just to let you know, I understand you read that as freshmen. So, uh, Aristotle's graces are also kindly goddesses, as the meaning of the new name that Athena gives to the Furies uh, indicates. They remind human beings to initiate and return acts of graciousness. In that sense, they're kindly goddesses. And they hold out the prospect that human life involves an exchange of goods that goes beyond that measured by money even if the latter exchange teaches us both our common needs and our ability to meet them, and thereby prepares us to worship at the Shrine of the Graces. Okay, now I'm going to turn to another vexed problem or question in Book 5, Natural Justice. But I've talked about reciprocity. It is a very long chapter, kind of in the middle of uh, Book 5. Aristotle then turns to natural justice. Uh, the forms, he calls it, he calls natural justice a form of political justice. 
Although the forms of justice that Aristotle has been discussing thus far might seem political, Aristotle's discussion now reaches the fundamental character of just human association. The just in the political sense, and I'm going to quote Aristotle, exist among those who share a life in common, who are free and equal, and for whom law is natural, namely those for whom there is equality in ruling and being ruled. Equality in ruling and being ruled does not imply a simple democracy, as in the distribution of goods, such as the property and honors he talks about when he discusses distributive justice, so in the distribution of ruling offices, the equal means the portion equal to one's merits in relation to those of others. The ruler about whom Aristotle is speaking here is one who is ruled by the law that structures his sharing rule with others, insofar as there is equality in ruling and being ruled. Whatever purport, so in other words, you, ha- you need law for this. Aristotle's not dropping the topic of law, but he's supplementing and enriching what he means by the ways in which law can operate in political community, just as he did in his, his discussion of exchange, which is a kind, and, and the medium of exchange, which is money, which is related to law and established by convention. So, whatever proportionate equality exists for those for whom law is natural, no one is so different from others as to be a law unto himself. The law that establishes and maintains institutions that require shared governance, as Aristotle said of money, facilitates the mutual exchange of goods that hold cities together because people participate in being ruled. Where there is equality in ruling and being ruled, established by law, lawgivers are also ruled by laws, and those whom they rule also have a part in ruling. There is a reciprocity between rulers and ruled, and it does not consist in striking and being struck, but in shared governance in which ruler and ruled fulfill fulfill their potential as political and rational animals. Aristotle is therefore offering a new dimension or manifestation of reciprocity in the political community. We could say that the graces are at work again. In cases of equality of ruling and being ruled to be sure, we cannot rely on the knowledge or skill of a legislative art that militates against error. But there is more opportunity for citizens to develop the capacity for for deliberation and to make more considered choices. The law that prescribes some sort of shared rule is based on the nature of human beings and what follows for how they should relate to one another, namely as citizens rather than as masters and slaves. Nature may ordain this, but it takes human beings to accomplish it. It is in this context that Aristotle refers to what is naturally just as a form of political justice. The naturally just, Aristotle says, has the same potential everywhere, regardless of opinion. As suggested by Aristotle's previous discussion, this potential would include that of human beings to share in ruling and being ruled, who are neither slaves nor masters by nature, and who are no longer children. There are many ways in which this potential might develop, just as there are many regimes that are not tyrannical, all based on some degree of equality among their members. Thus, whereas fire burns the same here and in Persia, Aristotle says, for us what is just by nature is altogether changeable, he says, since the regimes differ from one another. And yet there is only one regime everywhere that is in accord with nature, the best regime. Aristotle notoriously says very little here about this best regime, which alone exists according to nature. But he has laid out its foundations and limits, namely in the human potential to rule and be ruled, that finds expression in various ways even if Aristotle may have not yet seen it among the Persians. 
the particular structure and organization of the best regime by nature, such as the one he describes in the last two books of the politics, depend on human choices and actions. After discussing the naturally just, Aristotle turns to the conventionally or legally just. Here, he explains, things which make no difference in the beginning do make a difference once they have been set down by law. And he gives some examples, such as decrees as the, the sum of money to offer for a ransom, whether to offer a sacrifice of a goat or two sheep, whether or not to sacrifice to Brasidas or other such things. Aristotle's examples show that the naturally just and the human potential on which it is based is relevant to the legal are conventional forms of political justice. While Aristotle says it is conventional or up to us to determine how much we should offer for a ransom, he does not say the same about whether or not we should offer a ransom if circumstances permit. Conventions are just when they favor the freedom of human beings. So, too, while it is a matter of indifference whether a goat or two sheep are originally designated for sacrifice, Aristotle makes no similar observation about human sacrifice. The latter is never a matter of indifference, nor is it a matter of indifference whether there is to be sacrifice or, more generally, some way in which human beings worship the divine. Aristotle's third example of a law or convention that may be a matter of indifference until it is decided is that of sacrificing to Brasidas. Some of you may remember him if you read Thucydides. The sacrificing to Brasidas is a custom adopted by the Greek city of Amphipolis after the Spartan general Brasidas sacrificed his life for the city's freedom. This last example of Aristotle's, however, is problematic. When the people of Amphipolis celebrate Brasidas' act by worshiping him as a god, which is, I take, what sacrificing to him means, their honor suggests that achievements such as his are beyond what human beings can ask of themselves. But they must ask such deeds of themselves in order to preserve their freedom. By sacrificing to Brasidas and thereby treating him as divine, the Amphipolitans, I usually stutter over that word, but I've got it, the Amphipolitans give more to Brasidas than his due because they treat him as a god. And they give less to themselves because they're saying that his acts are not those that they could imitate as human beings. If they're honoring a human being as a god implies or presages their lost loss of freedom, Brasidus' noble sacrifice for their freedom fails to achieve its purpose. The loss of freedom is never a matter of indifference. Although conventions or laws set down at the beginning might be decided one way or another, once they are set down, as Aristotle said at the beginning of this section, they become binding. But what cannot be binding are those that undermine the equality and freedom that makes, make possible the shared governance appropriate to human beings. Laws or conventions such as human, human sacrifice treat human beings like beasts. Those such as worshiping Brasidas treat them as gods. Both undermine human equality and freedom and cannot be a matter of indifference. They cannot be decided one way or another at the outset. Justice cannot be simply abiding by law or convention, but requires preserving the freedom that serves as the indispensable support for the law's justice. Now I'm going to move to more or less the last part of Book 5 of the Ethics, Tragedy and Equity. Aristotle's last way of speaking about justice in Book 5, the justice of equity, is embedded in references to tragedy 
and allusions to problems that appear in tragedy. Aristotle makes a host of distinctions that tragedy ignores and that what he will soon describe as equity will be able to address. He begins by pointing out that while law legislates just actions and forbids and punishes unjust ones, someone acts unjustly or performs a just act only when he does so voluntarily. Voluntary acts, and he goes on to define them, are those that are up to the one acting. They come from him. That up to is not, you know, elegant, eloquent English, but it's kind of like what the Greek says. They're up to the one acting. Uh, then he acts voluntarily, and he acts, and his acts are performed with knowledge uh, of the person who is affected by his action, the means he uses, and his purposes in acting. If he was ignorant of all of those things, he would not be acting voluntarily. Aristotle illustrates his point. If someone strikes his father, not knowing that it is his father whom he is striking, his act is involuntary. Remind you of anyone? Uh, His example applies directly to Oedipus. Here he expresses his reservations about tragedy, or at least about those who in ignorance commit horrific acts such as patricide or incest and are held responsible or who hold themselves responsible. They are pitiable to be sure from Aristotle's point of view, but forgiveness, not blame, is appropriate. Even when one harms another, Knowing what one is doing, Aristotle also observes, one's act is not necessarily unjust. One might have acted from spiritedness or other natural passions. In such a case, it is noble to judge that person's act as unintended. That is, to render a judgment that supports pardon or forgiveness. This is one of the few times that Aristotle uses the noble in Book 5. He applies it not to the act of a spirited or angry person, one might think of the wrath of Achilles, but to the one who forgives him. This is not Homer's Iliad, in other words. Uh, Aristotle's usage is in accord with his calling the mean with respect to anger, gentleness, and explaining, this is in book four, and explaining that the gentle person inclines to forgiveness rather than to revenge. It is also prepared by his quick move in his discussion of reciprocity from returning harm for harm to initiating and returning good from the justice of Radamanthus to the beneficence of the graces. Even those who, who do not Exact the former, harm for harm, are held to be slavish. Aristotle doesn't deny this, but he responds, in effect, that the greater freedom lies in an act of grace or graciousness. Aristotle gives other examples that require judgment. He quotes, for example, from one of Euripides' plays. When the play's title, character, Alcmeon, admits that he killed his mother. Alcmeon supposes that his admission of his deed is sufficient, for he can reduce his tale to, quote, a brief speech, as he says in the line that Aristotle quotes. But Aristotle also quotes the response of his interlocutor. Did you kill her voluntarily? And was she killed voluntarily? Or was she killed involuntarily? And you did so voluntarily. Believe it or not, it comes from a Euripides play. Aristotle himself says it's strange. (laughs) Follow that. But even within tragedy, the point is, at at least within this tragedy, someone asks about the circumstances of the actions and the state of the doer and the sufferer of the action. Because Euripides' play has been lost, we Alcmean did not survive, we do not know how or if Alcmean responded to his questioner, nor do we even know who asked the question. All we have is the line that Aristotle quotes. But like the questioner, 
Aristotle thinks that more should be asked about Alcmean's deed in order to judge it properly. One might ask, for example, whether Alcmean killed his mother voluntarily if he was commanded to do so by his father as his father lay dying because of his wife's treachery, which happens to be the way the story goes. As Aristotle says, claims of justice can often be made by both sides of a conflict. In a conflict, the tragedian Aeschylus dramatized this point in the Oresteia when the votes of the court trying Orestes' case produce a tie. There were certainly extenuating circumstances to his matricide and that his mother had murdered his father and Orestes had been commanded by Apollo to kill her in turn. Athena resolves the deadlock because the court is tied. She resolves the deadlock in favor of pardon, proclaiming that she gives her vote to Orestes inasmuch as she herself is born only from Zeus, she had no mother, and favors the male in all things, even, she says, if she wouldn't marry one. <laughs> Aristotle finds a less arbitrary reason for pardon when he discusses a more human expedient, equity, which modifies the general rule as circumstances require. Because law necessarily speaks in general terms, it holds, he says, only for the most part. While not being ignorant of its error in doing so, I'm quoting Aristotle, I find that a remarkable line, the law errs with what he, it knows that it is committing an error. Like a tragic protagonist, the law errs. But unlike the tragic protagonist, it knows that it is doing so that it has to speak in universal terms to be effective because it is law. And, it cannot, and the law knows it cannot know the particular cases that will occur in time. Now, when I say the law knows, I mean we know laws don't know or not know anything. They're made by human beings and applied by human beings. But this is the language Aristotle uses. And I'm not sure that any law knows this, but it is a law interpreted by Aristotle. It is a law explained by Aristotle. This is what law should do. Aristotle often describes things as if they really existed. And they do really exist in his mind, and they will really exist if people are persuaded by them. That's another rule for reading Aristotle and understanding what he's doing. The lawgiver who understands that he cannot legislate for all the particular cases that occur over time, also understands that he can rule only in part, even if it is for the most part, and that there will be limits to the extent that he can legislate about everything in the city. He has learned what Aristotle has been trying to teach from the beginning of the ethics, namely in political matters, where the just, the noble, and the good are involved, matters hold only for the most part. In other words, this is a lawgiver educated by Aristotle that he's describing as the lawgiver. When extenuating circumstances occur, a kind of justice that Aristotle calls equity corrects the defect of the law stemming from its universality. Equity does not replace the law, however, nor does the person who corrects the law in particular cases replace the lawgiver, for he decides cases, quote, as if the lawgiver were present. His judgment must nevertheless supplement that of the lawgiver and even go beyond it, for he looks not merely to the law that has been violated, not to the words of the law, but to the sort of person the wrongdoer is or has been always or for the most part, rather in the moment he acts. He looks not to his action, but to the intention behind it. And Aristotle explains this in more detail in his rhetoric when he discusses equity there too. And Aristotle connects equity to pardon or forgiveness. Equity pardons what is human. I quote from the rhetoric here. The considerations that come into play in equity address the conflicts 
that might lead to tragedy. Okay, matricide is against the law. Aristotle has no problem with that. But should Orestes be pardoned for his matricide? Or to use another familiar example from tragedy, burying one city's enemy may be against the law. But should one bury one city's enemy if he happens to be one's brother? Is Antigone's intention to violate Creon's decree, or is it to obey a divine one? And what sort of person has Antigone been, for the most part, or always, rather than in the moment of her act? Equity, as Aristotle describes it, one would consider all these things that might prevent the tragic outcome we see in the Antigone. Aristotle concludes his discussion of equity by describing the equitable person himself. He is inclined to take less for himself, even though he has the law on his side. The one who tends to forgiveness in his judgment of others and thereby to grant them more leniency than the law requires also takes less than the law grants in cases where he himself is involved. He is not, quote, exacting about justice. In taking less for himself, Aristotle makes clear, he does not do injustice to himself or wish his own harm, for he, quote, grasps more of another good, such as reputation, or the simply noble. Aristotle's description of the equitable person here offers a model for the noble that contrasts with the characteristic tragic figure who chooses the noble over his own good. Aristotle gives the example of Achilles in the rhetoric uh, as someone we praise for doing what is noble because he disregarded his own benefit and death was nobler for him than living, although living, Aristotle says, was advantageous. Death for Achilles was noble, but not simply good, by Aristotle's uh, statement. Achilles grasped the noble like the equitable person, but only at the cost of his life. When Aristotle describes the equitable person as taking more of the simply noble when he takes less for himself, he severs the connection between nobility and death, just as he earlier connected nobility with forgiveness rather than with spiritedness or anger. The equitable person achieves the noble with no disservice to himself. To those who seek the noble, Aristotle offers the superior justice he calls equity and assigns to them the noble work in the political community that someone who takes less for himself might accomplish by being an equitable judge, he might accomplish the noble, and I will say it, without the ostentation of Achilles' sacrifice. Not the least controversial uh, thing I've said tonight, I'm sure. All right, so how am I doing on time? Well, not too bad. I don't go on forever. Although some of my students doubt that sometimes. I'm going to do the concluding part, which is the shortest part. It's on the question of suicide, to which Aristotle comes in the last chapter of Book 5. Right after his discussion of equity, Aristotle returns to the question whether it is possible to do injustice to oneself. And this time he mentions suicide explicitly. Suicide seems to call into question Aristotle's view that one cannot do injustice to oneself, along with its underlying assumption that no one wishes to harm himself. Is Aristotle ending his discussion of Book 5 with an exception to his general rule? Doesn't one who commits suicide wish to harm himself? Or does Aristotle's general rule have the character more of a command than a description, or rather a description of what might come to be, if not only law, but human life itself were informed by Aristotle's understanding?
Oedipus laments that he is evil and born from evil soon after he blinds himself, for example. While Yocasta's silence when she leaves the stage is still more ominous. These characters doubt their own goodness and they try to harm themselves, and they do. They suppose that it is better for them not to live, or at least that it is better for others not to have to live with them. Again, I am thinking of Oedipus, who asks that he be sent away from Thebes, for he is hated by the gods. Such characters are harsher on themselves than Aristotle teaches they should be, and have a harsher view of the gods than any Aristotle continences. Aristotle nevertheless attributes to the city a law that forbids suicide and that imposes penalties and dishonors on those who kill themselves. One might understand Aristotle here to confirm the all-embracing character of the city and its laws that order everything in it inasmuch as the city treats even the life of the individual as not his own to take. But a law against suicide indicates not the city's power, but its weakness, its failure to protect life, and its own weakness in the face of death. In imposing dishonors and penalties on those who take their lives, the city punishes one whom it is too late to save from death, almost like a tragic protagonist whose actions come, quote, too late to prevent death. That phrase, too late, is a famous little expression from the Antigone, when Creon arrives too late. And sometimes when people write books on tragedy, they use too late as the chapter title because it captures something about tragedy, arriving too late. All right. So the city, in a way, has arrived too late because it can't prevent suicide, or it doesn't, in those cases where it punishes and dishonors the person who commits suicide. By dishonoring suicide, however, the law honors life and the good for which it is the condition. It thereby asserts the goodness of life, even of the one who disavows it, by committing suicide. It may be too late for punishing, but it is not too late for teaching. This is the work of a good city, to teach rather than punish. Aristotle does not accept the tragic lament, too late. To summarize, the law that Aristotle presents indeed transforms in the course of his discussion of justice is not one that asserts its all-embracing authority over human beings, but one that supports human choice and action, as we have seen in so many ways. There are laws or conventions, like the word for nomos, that facilitate the exchange of goods, for example. There is ruling and being ruled that is just for those for whom law is natural. There is a law that knows it errs, and therefore that it must be supplemented by equity. And finally, in response to the poets, whose tragedies are replete with suicides, there is a law that dishonors suicide and thereby insists on the goodness of human life. So too do laws that command the deeds of virtue and forbid those of vice, regardless of their success, affirm which deeds are worthy and which not. If the law succeeded in guaranteeing that the deeds of citizens were always virtuous, citizens could not satisfy their desire to trust their own goodness, for their goodness would come not from themselves but from the law. Trusting one's own goodness, nevertheless, does not belong to a self-contained soul whose virtue lies in the proper relation between its parts, as Aristotle suggests in his concluding allusion to the Republic. That is because trusting our goodness requires confirmation from our deeds, deeds that involve others, such as those that Aristotle's treatment of justice in Book 5 bring to light. 
that of pardoning when appropriate, for example, or sharing in ruling and being ruled, or of placing shrines to divinities who encourage initiating acts of goodness and benefiting others in turn. To the extent that political communities succeed in supporting such experiences, they might be called upon less frequently to impose penalties on suicide. Regardless, however, Aristotle's elaboration of such experiences offer, offers us models for directing and even reforming the political communities in which we live. Thank you.